This is Retrospective Facilitation, a podcast for facilitators that want to make their retrospectives even more effective. Listen to industry experts, authors, and executives that advocate powerful retros, share their stories and insights on how to reflect, adjust, and become more effective. To receive updates on the latest episodes, subscribe to our newsletter at thisisretrospectivefacilitation.com and win a chance to ask questions to our guests. Alrighty, so today our guest is Elise, and she wrote a book called Where the Action Is, which is dedicated to meeting types and how to make the most out of our meetings. And retrospectives are really meetings, and so we're gonna get some insights from her. And thank you, Elise, for being on the show. Oh, I think this is going to be fun. I love retrospective action items or action reviews are one of my favorite kinds of meetings. So nice. let's do this. Yeah. And in, in her book has like a section dedicated to action reviews. And when I saw that she was passionate about it, I thought she would be a great guest. And uh, one of the um, things that uh, I, uh, I write in the book was about the perceived meeting quality and the net positive impact. And you mentioned that they, uh, some of those two create effective meetings. Uh, can you elaborate that a little bit and uh, for the audience? Yeah, absolutely. So um, perceived meeting quality or PMQ, this is an acronym that comes out of the academic research into meetings. And it turns out, in fact, that there is a fair chunk of academic research. We have scientific sort of data that tells us what makes meetings effective and what doesn't. And um, PMQ stands for Perceived Meeting Quality, and it's really all about the individual's experience in the meeting. Did they perceive that that was a good use of their time? And uh, when you look at the research, they, they dug into all of the stuff that you read in the terrible articles online, right? Where you go, okay, my meetings are a waste of time. I'm going to go Google this and I'm going to fix it. And you're going to find an article and I, I can just save you like hours of research right now. It goes exactly like this. Meetings are a terrible waste of time. They terribly suck and I hate them. Yet they are important. So here are three things you need to do. You know, have an agenda and keep it short and, and take some notes. Okay, so that's every article everywhere. And so the researchers decided to go ahead and research if that was true, right? Like, does having an agenda help? Does keeping it short help? Do you have to keep it to five people or less? All of these different things. And what they found was that the key to having someone feel like it was a good meeting, and this is especially critical for something like a retrospective, is that they know what to expect going in. They have those expectations met and that they actively participate. So if you're doing a retrospective and you're saying, we're going to get together and we're going to learn about what we did over this last week, hear from everybody about ways we can make this process better. And then we are going to impact change in how we work so that our work, it does get better. That's got to happen for perceived meaning quality. And then net positive impact is really about, it's really about the money. It's really about the business impact side of it. So you're spending time, you're spending money to do that work. Are you getting a result out of it? And in the case of a retrospective, you absolutely should be. You should be getting continuous improvement. Nice. Um, one thing you mentioned about um, keeping the group engaged, uh, I feel touched on the meeting roles 
And um, I feel sometimes people think that, well, I'm the retrospective facilitator. I need to do everything. Um, you mentioned those roles in the book. Uh, can you like uh, maybe like mention that for the audience? Because I think that's a powerful piece. You know, what's really powerful about roles is, um, well, so first of all, I think if you step back for a second and you think about what a meeting is, you know, a meeting is a gathering of a group of people to achieve a goal. Uh, not that different from, say, sports, right? So let us imagine a situation where the coach of the soccer team thinks they need to do all the jobs. <laughs> Are they gonna, that's not going to work, right? Meetings, much like soccer, is a team sport. So roles give you sort of language and an identified way to share the work that's going on in the meetings across the group. And really, if you don't have somebody, if you have someone in the room who is there and doesn't have a role to play, they don't have a job to do, they shouldn't be on the field. Um, so the, the common roles we see with meetings in general are the facilitator and the facilitator's job is to make sure that the process, that there is a process and that it's followed. You know, they do things like keep the, keep the conversation running and, and they're the guardians of how it gets done. Um, there are all kinds of roles you can assign timekeeper, um, note taker, uh, and when you get into teams that have developed their own special sauce way, you can start to get into some invention of roles that are unique to what makes your team go. So, for example, um, the team at uh, Lululemon, they have uh, a role called the Vibes Watcher. And that person's job is to, like, watch what's going on emotionally in the room and speak up when people are being shut down or everybody's dancing around, you know, whatever animal metaphor you want to use that's on the table that nobody wants to talk about. Right. So that's their job. Um, there's an organization that does work in the financial sector and they have a role called, um, norm, the enforcer <laughs> and, and norm, the enforcer's job is to enforce the team norms. Like everybody speaks once before we move on, for example, or we stick to time limits or whatever those norms might be. But giving everybody roles like that is a great way to get them involved. And it also means, you know, when you're there, you're, re you're jointly responsible for making sure that that value comes out. Nice. Nice. Um, cool. And I think uh, team norms might have been another one of the tools that you had in the book. And maybe since you mentioned that, you want to touch on that? How do they help making meetings more effective? So when we look at meetings across an organization or across a team, you know, going beyond the retrospective, but all of the meetings, a norm is basically, it's basically an agreement, right? We, we say out loud that this is a way that we agree to behave together, that we agree to go into this action together. So in the case of, um, of the action reviews, often that has to do with something like, like the Keith directive, you know, about, um, you know, we assume everybody did their best. Um, in some groups, that might mean Vegas rules. You know, <laughs> what happens in this meeting stays in this meeting. Um, Chatham House rules are very similar. You know, you can take things away from the meeting, but you don't get to give attribution. Um, so the, so norms are, are explicit. Uh, when we look at 
the larger meeting operating system. So how organizations and teams develop not just one meeting, but a whole series of meetings that make them successful. Um, norms create performance criteria for how you're going to make those work. Nice. So when you step back and you look at things like, um, like Amazon, Amazon's got a couple of very famous performance criteria they use for their meetings. They have the um, no PowerPoint rule and they have the two pizza rule. Uh, both of which drive specific behavior in the meetings, right? Like no PowerPoint's pretty explicit, but it also says what they do do. The other thing those are doing and that you can do with your norms in your own work is they're saying who you want to be as a culture, right? These are the things we care about. This is the kind of people we are, right? Like Amazon could have said like no big meetings, but they said no, they said the two pizza rule which sort of indicates they're trying to be young and cool and attract college grads. <laughs> you know, who knows what that means? <laughs> they, they like greasy carbs. I don't know what it means exactly, but, but it, has, it tells you things about who they are as a culture. So norms are great that way. Nice. And I think you mentioned something about the um, larger like, organization kind of like um, structure. And you have, a, um, you have something in the book about the uh, meeting flow model where um, I think you, you explain how after action review and other meetings fit in into the, into the wider kind of like project structure. Can you mention that to the, to the audience? What is this meeting flow model and how does a retrospective fit in to the rest of the meeting ecosystem for a project? Okay, so there are, um, so in our research, so our, our company has been around for about, about a decade and um, we started with some really strong beliefs about how meetings work that we were um, through the process of wonderful learning disabused of <laughs> and, and had the opportunity to like really go, okay, wait a second. What we thought was true isn't true. So what is actually true? What actually works? And we started digging into all the different kinds of meetings that there are. And we found that there are 16 distinct categories of meetings action reviews, retrospectives, um, being one of the major categories. And then we say, okay, well, if this is a distinct kind of meeting, you know, nobody, no team that they don't hold just one meeting, right? We, we don't have one meeting and then we're done. And then we get to go home and, and just collect a paycheck. It doesn't work that way. Our work evolves. We keep learning, what are the other meetings that we're holding and how do they fit together? So when you look at agile processes, there are some, there are some very strong um, systems or patterns that explain which meetings you have uh, in which order for which reason. And when you lay that out in sort of a, a system or um, process diagram, you get what we call a meeting flow model. And it shows how you use different types of meetings at different times to help you take your team from the kickoff to the goal line, right? The, the play you do at the kickoff is not the same play you do when you're trying to kick the field goal. These are different plays you use in sequence to achieve your goals. So retrospectives are, are one of many of the meetings in, in the Agile methodology. And then when you look across the business, you'll see... Um, similar kinds of processes for every functional unit. 
Uh, one thing I, I liked about uh, that meeting flow is like it kind of outlines how some of those meetings are internal to as a consultancy. Some of it is like with the client, some of it is for the client. Um, so I found that uh, that pretty interesting. Do you usually find like that uh, flow is set up before a project? Do like the team kind of like put that together, or is it already part of like uh, part of the team norms? Would you say? I find that most teams. Uh, well, let, let's let's talk about meeting performance maturity just for a second. So um, when you look across organizations, the vast majority of organizations take meetings for granted and put very little thought or design into them at all, which is um, redonkulous. <laughs> it's a crazy, crazy inefficient waste of time and money um, and leads to all kinds of, they're just bleeding opportunity. It's just, it's, it's crazy making. So, so that's, so, you know, the original answer to your question is that most people don't do anything. Most people show up into a room and hope that talking talking at each other will solve their problems. Um, hint: not the best path. <laughs> it's only it's only when you get to to more advanced levels of maturity that people actually sit down and spell out what they're going to do and how they're going to run their different meetings. Now, often that starts when. Um, like say a team is just starting to run Agile or they've, they've just pulled on XP, right? Or Scrum or one of the name brand methodologies. And there are name brand methodologies also for sales and leadership and all kinds of other parts of the business. And that methodology will say, for this to work, you have to run the daily Scrum. And it's going to work exactly like this. And you ask these three questions, you know, and you do it in five minutes. And then you run a kickoff and then you run a planning and then you do a backlog grooming, right? And that's, that's a meeting flow model. And the team who pulls that on is pulling on Scrum. And the fact that they pulled on a meeting flow model with it isn't something they necessarily talk about. So it's really only when you get even to the next couple of levels of maturity where people go, aha, hold on a second. <laughs> Every time we try to do something better, we end up getting this whole new way of meeting in sequences. Maybe we should pay attention to that. And um, I think um, that meeting performance uh, maturity model to me resonates similarly to, um, I spoke with Diana Larson about the uh, Agile fluency and how different retrospectives like behave different. There's different like um, formats and also different uh, objectives, different purposes. Um, in and so this uh, I found very very interesting in the book. Um, one other thing that was in the book is the core competencies, and um, I took note. I'll be honest, I don't remember all of them, but uh, I found that they were pretty uh, pretty uh, efficient way to kind of like create uh, an effective meeting. Um, would you like that to share that with the, with the audience? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the core competencies are, they're kind of like, they're like the things that you should have learned. I think, you know, in high school when you had to do team projects, <laughs> but, but for sure you should have learned this stuff in college and we super weren't taught that. And in fact, when you look across corporate America, fewer than, 25% of managers get any training in how to run meetings. 
even though they spend up to 70% of their work week in meetings, how many other jobs do we have people get paid a lot and not train them to do their job? Hmm. Um, so the core competencies are basically these five things that you need to do to make sure that a meeting gets high PMQ. So the people in the room think that was a good use of their time and they got to participate. And it creates value for the organization. Um, and the, the first is understanding, you know, the purpose of that meeting, like being able to articulate that incredibly clearly and also the desired outcomes. So what explicitly of value will we walk out of from this room after we're done? Or what do we hope we're going to get, right? Um, and then from there, there are a number of other things that, uh, that, that you need to do to create the engagement, to get to that result, and then make sure that result can manifest out into the business itself. Because we don't meet just for the fun of it most of the time. Sometimes we do. <laughs> Let's be honest. We're social animals, right? Sometimes people get into a room because they can't stand their own head any longer. But, um, but for the most part, it's about, it's about business results. So. Nice. Uh, one thing that I remember you mentioned is like uh, you need a structure for your meeting, which doesn't necessarily mean you need always need an agenda. And uh, can you elaborate on that? So, um, so think about the daily standup, right? Does anybody send out an agenda for the standup in advance? No. Does that mean that you show up and it's a free for all? No. <laughs> You know, the standup is a highly structured meeting. It has rules about how it runs, when it runs, who talks, what they talk about, and how it's done. Um, and if you're clear on what the result is meant to be, which is, you know, basically information density, rapid information density, and visibility into things that um, can cause blockages in the work or opportunities that you need to take advantage of, right? So you you know what those things are. You can continue to adjust how you run it, but that doesn't mean you have an agenda. Um, another technique that's incredibly useful is basically uh, the lean coffee technique or the real-time agenda technique, right? Open space. These are all variations on, on what we call a real-time agenda. Now, that's not, you know, I've sent a list of the five things we're going to talk about in advance and there we go, because that's kind of what an agenda is. It's, um, it's a mechanism, it's a structure for taking a group from we need to talk to we've got results that matter to us. Nice. And I actually wanted to mention that um, real-time agenda. Oftentimes, um, we find retrospectives that don't have a structure. It's kind of like a free-for-all. Uh, maybe there is no, uh, no preparation, no training maybe on, on to go in. And I found that uh, the real-time agenda to be to be pretty uh, kind of like hitting the nail on the head and like a quick way to put attention to what is important. Uh, do you mind sharing that real-time agenda format with the audience? Yeah, so the real-time agenda is, um, it's, it's kind of, if anybody's used the KJ technique, it's sort of a, a variation on that. But basically, you walk people into the room and you have a theme. So in the, in the case of an action review or a retrospective, the theme would be, you know, what happened and what did we learn from this last bit of work that we need to talk about? 
And people then suggest topics. And there are a number of ways you can do this. But at some point, everybody in the room is responsible for suggesting what they think needs to be talked about, and you put it up. And then there are a number of ways of doing this. The group then prioritizes what they believe to be the most important of those things to talk about. And you tackle them in order. Now, the key to making that work is that um, it's, it's a consensus-based prioritization. Right, the team itself is in, responsible for the topics. The team is responsible for which ones are the most important, and then you time box discussion on each one. So, let's say that you've got the first topic up, and you decide that it's you know um, the way that our code review went was inefficient. I never got code review on my thing, and then I released a bug or whatever, whatever your thing might be. Um, and then you say you give that ten minutes. And at the end of 10 minutes, the group says, okay, are we done with this, right? Do we have resolution on this topic, yes or no? And then you can choose to extend that time or you can choose to move on. But all together, you give yourself 60 minutes, let's say, to get through whatever you're going to get through. And that way, you explicitly handle issues one at a time, topics one at a time, in the order that the group decides is the most important order to the point where you get an explicit result. And you don't have to have an agenda in advance. That can all happen right in that room. But it's very structured. Yeah, I like that that format. Uh, I think the uh, there's a, another approach which I call the whack-a-mole retrospective, which is where it's like trying to jump between all the topics and there's like a minimal discussion. So I like that the uh, real-time agenda has the... Uh, I, I didn't know that the name was that, but just like creating uh, affinity mapping and doing some like uh, some voting or some polling to understand what priority to start uh, discussing can, I think, help getting to retrospectives that are more effective so that you kind of like uh, get to resolution to at least some of those items. And here's a question for you. What if like the 10 minutes uh, are not enough to discuss like this topic? Maybe we found like we opened a kind of worms that is much bigger than the 10 minutes. How would you tackle that situation? Um, first of all, I'd put it back to the group. So, the uh, you know, meetings are a team sport. Success is team owned, right? And everything that you can actually tackle and honestly solve is a better result than not kind of sort of solving 20 things. So if you've opened a can of worms and it looks like that's going to be a huge deal, um, I would get to the end of that 10 minutes and I'd call it. And then I'd raise the question, you know, is this the time to handle this right now? In which case we need to acknowledge that everything else on our list gets let set aside or should we schedule a, a separate conversation for that? Now, I think having the courage to notice when you've drifted away from what you're in the room to do into something bigger and call it out is an incredibly important skill for meeting performance in general. Because the, um, the way in which we can successfully solve a complex problem and address a complex problem is not always served by just hashing it out in a room when it first comes up, right? There is actually a very specific kind of meeting process or structure for problem solving that's very distinct from action review process 
So if you know you're in that, one of the things you might do there is say, you know what, this looks like it's a big problem. And we need to be able to have the courage to call that out and schedule two hours for that on Friday. You know, and then if it's not, you can just take another five minutes and finish it. <laughs> you know, that's. I like that you mentioned it. It goes back to the team, and I think the uh, the, the the brief mention to the meeting roles before it might. It, you're the facilitator. You might have someone else calling time. You might have someone else having the responsibility to call this poll to the group. Should we go ahead or not? Yeah. Um, another thing that was in the competencies was um, to take visible notes. And I found that like when we're in meetings and like people like say stuff, um, how, how do you say that taking notes help that process? Um, well, so visible notes, uh, visible notes are, are actually a game changer for a lot of different teams. Um, because they're doing a number of things at once. Uh, the most obvious one is they're extending the value of what you're doing in that meeting outside of the meeting, right? So to get a quality meeting, you have need to have relevant people in the room who are participating. But because we're not sure how to make that line, how to, how to, how to say who's in and who's out, we often invite everybody, which means we get fewer people participating. We get lower um, value out of the call. The energy goes down. Um, the way you solve that is you take notes and then you share them out afterwards. So, so the most obvious and larger business value of notes is that um, they get out. But the reason you take them visibly in the meeting where everybody can see them is that it's that way of taking it from being, you know, Elisa's idea or uh, Diana's idea or whoever's idea and, and making it a shared idea. And, um, showing people, uh, yes, Diana, I heard you and I heard you and you can tell that I heard you because here it is in writing. And then when you get towards the end and you get to that bit where you're going, okay, Hey, Hey there, <laughs> I think we made some decisions here. And I think some things are supposed to happen as a result. You can actually see them in writing. And before you even leave the room, validate that that is in fact what you decided that is in fact what you promised to do so you get better engagement better shared understanding better sense of being heard while you're in the room you get clearer stronger agreements before you leave the room you save the note taker time because nobody's typing up meetings afterwards <laughs> and you help get everybody involved who wasn't in the room it's like a quadruple or quintuple or like, you know, I don't know however many upples sort of benefit that, that people just need to do. Okay. I only have three questions. So we're pretty much uh, at, the, at the end of it. And what I usually do, I ask the same three questions to all the guests. Um, so the, the first question I have is if you have a, um, a preferred a retrospective facilitation uh, technique that you use, and if you can tell us like a, a story where it was successful. Um, you know, I like to switch it up all the time because I like to play. And do you have a book that you're currently reading? I'm currently reading, um, Brene Brown's Dare to Lead. Nice. And uh, the final question, Liz, is what is your favorite food? Uh, boy, I am a foodaholic, but today it's Dutch mints. 
<laughs> what is the Dutch mint? They're like these minty dark chocolate things. And I had this really garlicky pizza for lunch. So right now, Dutch mints are all, all, all the rage. Nice. Um, Liz, thank you so much for your time. And uh, this was a lot of fun. Uh, thank you again. Ah, thank you. Thank you for having me. I hope it's useful to somebody. Our guests share lots of insights and ideas. Which change are you going to try in your next retrospective? Tell us on Twitter with hashtag thisisretrospectivefacilitation or leave us a comment on thisisretrospectivefacilitation.com You can connect with Elise on her website jeliesekeith.com Norm Kurt, known as the father of retrospectives and author of the book Project Retrospectives, suffered a disabling brain injury in a car accident 20 years ago. Visit thisisretrospectivefacilitation.com slash helpnorm for details and a link on how to contribute to his fund. Thank you for listening. This is Enrico Teotti. Till next time.